allow me to uh, pray for us. Father Lord, we know that we are living in dangerous times because when your word is proclaimed, Satan would want to snatch your words away from our hearts. So I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that you will give them tender hearts, open ears to listen to your words. And may you help my feeble lips and the meditation of my heart upon your words. May my sharing be faithful to you and to bring you glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so how many of you managed to catch the Liverpool versus Crystal Palace match at National Stadium last Friday? Anyone manage? Yeah, okay, okay, I see a few hands. All right, don't be shy eh, if you have uh, watched the match, nothing to be ashamed about. Uh, because uh, some of you may know I, I'm a huge Liverpool fan. Again, for many years, Liverpool Football Club has greatly influenced my life. You know, I, I start my day, I have to say this uh, as a pastor, I start my day by reading the Bible. Then I would read about Liverpool uh, news, you know, about their latest transfer and the team news. And uh, when I was much younger, I used to wake up in the wee hours of the morning to catch uh, their match, even on a working day. And my mood for that day would be based on Liverpool's result. No, if, if they won, then I would have felt uh, tired but happy. But then if they lost, I would have felt tired and lousy. And I would also analyse and talk about their match performance uh, with my fellow Liverpool fans, supporters. And my wardrobe was filled with uh, Liverpool jerseys. Uh, initially, I wanted to wear a Liverpool jersey here to preach this morning. But in order not to stumble my brothers in Christ who are Manchester United uh, supporters, and for the love of them, I refrained from doing so. And my dream since I was a boy was to travel to Anfield to watch a Liverpool match. I've been dreaming about it for the past 37 years, and I'm still dreaming about it today. Well, you could say knowing Liverpool has changed my life. And if my association and love for Liverpool, a club located some 13,000 kilometres away in the United Kingdom, a club that doesn't even know of my existence, has impacted my life then how much more would knowing God impact your life and mine? Do you really know God? What are some evidence or fruits in your life to show that you truly know God? In 1 John chapter 2, we'll, answer, we'll probably answer some of these questions. So uh, I just want to help us along, give us an overview of what I will be covering today. Okay, so we will see that uh, John, John will talk about people who claim that they know God. We see that different groups of people. Some will just talk about God, while another group will truly obey God in uh, verses 3 to 11. <clears throat> then uh, there will be those who love the world versus those who love the Father from verse uh, 15 to 17. And then those who deny Christ and those who abide in Christ. Okay, so we will look at the first point, those who talk. Okay, those who talk about God. So there, there were some in his time who claimed that they know God and they possess special divine knowledge from God. They pride themselves in that. And they equate, they equate the knowledge of God to the right standing with God. So they suppose they, the more they know about God, the holier they are. 
Yet we saw last week in 1 John chapter 1, right, that the fruit of repentance and godliness is missing in their lives as they insist that they have not seen and continue to walk in darkness, proving that their knowledge of God is warped. And we see this week in chapter 2, John calls them out in verse 4. He said, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You see, they are liars because their lives doesn't reflect that they know the holy God. Their hearts may be puffed, or rather their heads may be puffed up with knowledge, like the scribes and Pharisees, but their failure to obey God exposes and reveals that their hearts are a million miles away from God. They only pay God lip service. Well, perhaps uh, some of us may think that we know a lot about God just because we are well-read and know, know, have read a lot of uh, commentaries and all, or we can give all the right answers during Bible study at basic or at DG. It doesn't make us right with God. At the end of the day, what matters is not the amount of hate knowledge about God from Christian books and commentaries, but our obedience to Him. And so recently, you know, I have some uh, book allowance uh, to spend, to clear. And I wanted to buy some uh, good Christian books for my kids. Uh, then I realized that my life is an open book for them to read every day. And no point buying them books that talk about God when they cannot see God in their father's life. For if we fail to obey God, if I fear to obey God, then who am I to tell my kids to follow Him? And as parents, we would have failed if we tell our kids, God is love, but they can't see the love for God in your life. While others amongst us, you know, we may pride ourselves in holding on to uh, doctrines of secondary importance and elevate it into a core doctrine and insist that others must share our views. So a few uh, in our midst uh, get upset when we don't preach enough about the kingdom of God. And uh, one or two even told me that they think that we are unfaithful because we didn't keep the Sabbath on a Saturday. I remember when I was a young Christian, you know, uh, I was intrigued by eschatology. Uh, the last days, the study of you know, when Jesus comes again. Uh, and in eschatology, there's a pre-meal view, there's a post-meal view, and there's an all-meal view or a-meal view. And I enjoy a few friendly sparring sessions uh, on this doctrine with anyone who bothers to talk to me. Until one day, I met a missionary who, who, uh, who told me that he subscribed to Pen Mill. I was like, wow, this is a new doctrine. Tell me more. And then he told me, look, Jason, everything will pan out in God's timing. So let's not argue about secondary doctrines. And now today, I'd like to add Happy Mill to the list. Happy to know that God is control of my future. 
So, brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm not saying that doctrines aren't important. They are. And actually, 1 John would insist that doctrines are important. But if we let pride take root in our hearts and quarrel about secondary doctrines, then we would have broken the most important commandment of God to love Him and to love one another. For the doctrine is that God is one and He is love. So what is the evidence that we truly know God? According to John, it's our obedience to Him. Seen in verse 3, 5 and 6. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. But whoever keeps His word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So according to John, if you proclaim God to be your God, and you call Jesus Christ, Christ means the anointed one. Anointed for what? Anointed to be the king. If he's truly your God and your king, then you will surely obey your God's and king's commands and his words and you will walk in the same way in which he walked, isn't it? And our obedience to him, our obedience to him reveals how much we truly acknowledge him as God. And John goes on to say in verse 5, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. So what does John mean here? Okay, so the love of God has a few possible meanings. First, the love of God could mean our love for God. The second possible, possible meaning is God's love for us. And uh, I would be more inclined to go with the third possible meaning in the context of uh, 1 John. Is God's love for us produces fruit in us which enables us to love him in return. And this idea is seen most clearly in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, the very familiar verse. We love because, can you fill in the blank? We love because he first loved us precisely. So brothers and sisters in Christ, when you understand how much God loves you and what he has done to redeem you, then your obedience to him it's not out of compulsion, but out of love. When you understand his heart, then you will share his heartbeat too. Hence, the love of God is perfected or completed. And next, John expounds on what sharing God's heartbeat looks like in verse 7 to 11. 7 and 8, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So God's heartbeat is love, and he gave the commandment for his people 
to love one another. But what is this old and new commandment that John is writing about? Okay, there are a, a few views out there by different scholars. Uh, yeah, in order not to confuse everyone by going through all the different views, I will just stick to two. Okay, the second one is the, the one I'm most inclined to go with. The first would be this, that the Old Commandment refers to the, the, what is written in the Old Testament, right? The command to, for them to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, uh, you'll be, you know that the first four refers to love for God, and the last six refers to the love for one another, love for neighbor, right? So it's, it's nothing new, this call to love one another. It's, it's found in the Old Testament, so it's an old commandment. But it's, it's considered a new commandment because Jesus said so in John 13, 34, right? Of which you are very familiar with. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. So previously it was just love the neighbor, but now Jesus benchmark. He models and shows us what loving neighbor look like. He calls us to love one another just as he has loved us. Okay? So this would be uh, the first view of what the old and new means. Okay, the second option which uh, we have. Next slide. Yeah. Okay, so the new commandment that, that Jesus gave in John 13, 34 to love one another just as he has loved uh, us, right? Uh, the, by now, John's reader would have heard about it long, long ago, right? When they first received the gospel. So it's no longer new to them. It's an old commandment already, okay? But the newness of it is seen in verse 8, okay? At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So the love, this love command is true in Jesus and also true in you, denoting the readers. And so it says the worst, the worst darkness is passing away. Okay, darkness is passing away. Why? Because Jesus, the true light, is shining. How is Jesus, the true light, shining? Previously, when Jesus gave the first commandment to love one another just as he has loved us, right? He, he was still alive. Right? But this is post-death and resurrection. So Jesus' uh, work has been finished. His work of redeeming us, of cleansing us, and he has embodied love by dying on the cross for us. So his, uh, him being the propitiation for our sins has dispelled the darkness in our lives. And so now a new age has dawned. The newness of the love command is now expressed in the church, those who are the recipients of Jesus' love now embodies that love. And this is seen in uh, John 13, 35, where Jesus said, By these, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay, so the newness is because now what Jesus has done on the cross, cleanses us of our sins, love us, and now we are enabled to love one another, okay? Linking to the earlier uh, verses which I've mentioned. Hence, the love of God is perfected or completed. If you're still lost, you can come and talk to me after uh, service. But let me just put this disclaimer. No matter which view you take, 
I'm going to sum it up this way. Okay, this is how, this is how I'm going to sum it up. Okay, so uh, imagine if you were to go to Sports Hub on Friday, last Friday, where Liverpool is playing, okay, the greatest team in the world, okay, uh, what would you have experienced? What would you have experienced at, at Sports Hub? Next slide. Probably you experienced this, right? A sea of red, you know, all the fans wearing a uh, Liverpool jersey, they're holding the scarf, and they'll be cheering and singing, you will never walk alone, their theme song. Now let's turn around and I ask you, uh, now when you walk into a church meeting or a gathering of Christians like this, what would you expect to experience? Perfect AV and sound? or the aircon set at the right temperature, a pitch-perfect singing from Hui Yen and the music team, or entertaining sermons. I'm afraid to disappoint you. Uh. Each time you come, one of these might not be, uh, you know, meet the expectation, right? But according to Jesus, it's love. What sets us apart from a Liverpool supporter club or any social gathering for that matter is love. So when you come, this morning, you don't ask, who is here to love me? You ask the question, how can I love you, brother or sister? So now can I just ask you to turn to the people on your left and right and ask them, how can I love you, brother or sister? And I pray that you meant what you ask, okay? See, brothers and sisters in Christ, the church is made up of a mixed bag of people. Mixed bag of people, people of different backgrounds. This shows the reach of Jesus' love. And Jesus went all out to bring them into the church, not for us to ignore each other, but for us to love one another. So I'd like to challenge you to love. And you know what type of people is the most difficult to love? People who are different from us. So young people, I challenge you to speak to an older person after service this morning. And old people, I, I, my two kids are there, the one in red and uh, grey, uh, I challenge you to speak to them, okay? Yeah, they're not that frightening after all. Yeah, they don't use the young people lingo, then we don't understand what, what they speak. I, I challenge you to speak to people of different social economic status and background. Because Jesus didn't come to offer us shallow superficial love you know he didn't come to send us virtual hugs you know or likes or thumbs up no but he offers us deep sacrificial love and i pray that you will move out of your comfort zone and do likewise and next john warns those who fail to love verse 9 Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in, in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So let me ask you a point-blank difficult question. Is there anyone in church right now that you dislike? Or let me just put it bluntly. Is there anyone you hate? 
Perhaps you stop attending basic or DG because you cannot stand someone in your group. And you know what? I have a relative who proclaims to be a Christian, but he was very offended by a pastor who shook his hand in what he deemed as an unfriendly manner. I don't know what that means. And he was so angry, he never went back to church ever again here today. Perhaps his hatred for that pastor is greater than his love for God. The darkness has blinded his eyes. When our eyes are blinded by self-righteousness, by pride, by pettiness, many things can trigger us. Perhaps you may be thinking, hey, this Pastor Jason, his English is so bad, yet he can still stand up there to preach. No, his ball patch is blinding my eyes. No, he's so shallow. In his sermon, he, he talks about worldly things like Liverpool. And the least goes on if you live in darkness. You will hate your brother. It's just a matter of time. And you will find every reason to do so. But if you truly know God, then you will obey Him in His command to love one another. Next point we see, John highlights that there, were, there are some people who love the world while true believers love the Father in verse 15 to 17. He said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Just leave the slide on. Uh, John made three statements about the world. The first statement he made is you either love the world or the Father and not both. Next slide. Yet, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it tells us that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, Jesus died for the sins of the world, to redeem us out of the world, to be his holy people. So for us Christians who were redeemed out from the world, to love the world is like a dog going back to its own vomit. If you love the world, you hate the Father. The second statement John made about the world is this, that the desire for the world doesn't come from the Father. John further describes what he meant by the things in this world in verse 16. He tells us that it's the desires of the flesh the desires of the eyes and pride of life or our boastfulness of what we have in this life where we boast about our worldly possessions and achievements and we boast it to the world. To put it simply, where we live to satisfy our own earthly desires alone. 
And this is best seen in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, the passage we're all familiar with. You know, where Eve saw that the, the tree was good for food, the desire of the eyes and uh, not the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She wants to be wiser than God. She took of its fruit and ate. And like Eve, we too live to satisfy our own earthly desires alone, oftentimes, where we, do, we desire the things of this world rather than the things of God. What do I mean? Okay, so let me just ask you, would you rather uh, read your IG and Facebook feed or would you read the Bible? Honestly, first thing in the morning. How many of you wake up early in the morning and say, God, I love you, I want to read your word? Or would you be more inclined to read the news, read your Facebook and IG? On Sundays, would you rather go for high tea or go for church service? I thank God that he has brought you here and you are, you are the faithful ones. Huh? June holidays, kids, would you rather meet God's people at church camp or Mickey at Disneyland? So parents, would you rather send your kids for children's church and basic or send your kids for enrichment classes or piano and tennis lessons? where you can unlock their achievements and potential. See, Ecclesiastes tells us that God has blessed us with all things in this world, right? So it's actually God's good gifts to us. And Ecclesiastes exhorts us to you know, enjoy it and give thanks to the Lord. But when our desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing, then that desire has become a ruling thing. Or I put it simply, when we turn the good thing into a God thing, when that thing that God has given us, we love it more than we love God, then it becomes a problem because it's competing for our hearts. And the third statement John made about the world is that the world is temporal and is passing away. Okay, so, uh, so when you go to a supermarket, whether NTC or cold storage, to buy fresh milk, you know, how many of you would do this? You walk to the, uh, the section where they uh, have the milk, right? You would dig, right, the, dig the packet right at the end, right? You search for the packet right deep in the end and check the expiry date, right? Normally, they hide all the long expiry date behind, you know, in front of all, one, all the milk, all one to thousand already. So would you choose one with a longer expiry date or shorter expiry date? I guess the answer is obvious. Okay. And if you were to buy a property, you know, two houses next to each other, exact same specs and price, same specs and price, would you buy one which is freehold or one which has a 99 years lease? Obviously, right? Then when it comes to investing our love and our life. Why do we choose the, the world instead of God? It is foolish, foolish to choose the world because John tells us the world is passing away. It has a very short expiry date, although the world may appears, appear to have, a, a, to have this deceptiveness of being permanent. 
But all that our eyes see right now will one day no longer exist. And so John goes on to write that those who love the Father in verse 17 and whoever, uh, no, whoever does his will abides forever. So if you want to buy food product with no expiry date, don't buy. Okay, a lot in uh, the you know, Malaysia and Thailand, no expiry date at all. Okay, but with regards to God, if you abide in Him, this is what you receive. Okay, and but first I have to explain what does it, what does John mean that uh, no, whoever does His will abides forever. What is this will? Well, I guess Jesus explains it best in John chapter six verse forty when He said. For this is the will of my Father, what is God's will? That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So the Father's will is for us to love Him by loving His Son, in whom we will abide forever. Abiding in God means we have eternal life. And so if you know God, you will love Him and not love the world. And the final point I want to make is that there will be some who will deny Christ while the faithful ones will abide in Christ. Verse 18, Children, it is the last hour and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Just leave the slide on for a while. So John tells us a few things about the Antichrist here. First, he tells the readers that you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. It's not new information for them. They've been warned before of the coming of the Antichrist. And he goes on to say, so now many Antichrists have come, and there are many of them. And their presence confirms that this is the last hour or the last days, the time between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. And he also tell them that they went out from us. So these people who were antichrist, they were once part of the church. So imagine they could be once sitting here attending service, or they could be sitting next to you. They could have partake communion with us, or even come up here to be baptized. And their living, their living reveals that they were never really Christian to begin with. And what's so dangerous about them? Well, John warns us about them in verse 22 and 23. He said, Who is the liar but he who denies Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So the word Antichrist makes up of two words. anti which means oppose or against. Oppose and against who? 
against Christ. Where this group of antichrists, they deny, what, what did they deny according to John chapter 2? They de deny that Jesus is the Christ. They deny his identity, that he's the anointed one, he's the Messiah. And they, they also deny his person. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, they deny that Jesus comes in the flesh. They deny that Jesus is a man, is a human. If Jesus is, is not a human, then he cannot die on behalf of you and me, right? Then he cannot serve as our high priest. And overall, they would have denied his works, his finished work on the cross, thus cancelling out salvation for us. And in verse 20, 26, why is John writing about this Antichrist? He writes because they are trying to deceive the Christians. So some commentators think that this group of antichrists probably are some, you know, they may hold some leadership position in church, you know, teach, uh, they may be false teachers. And so not only do they deny Christ, but they are trying to poison the believers and the church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, not all who sit here this morning are true believers. There may be some who will walk out of church and never return and who have rejected Jesus. But I believe that the majority of us would not fall under the category of an outright antichrist. But we may struggle with low-grade denial of Christ in our lives. And what does denying Christ look like in day-to-day -day living? Perhaps you may deny the sufficiency of his death, where we try to depend on our good works to please him. We, be, we may deny that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You know, where we feel really uncomfortable to share the gospel with our friends, to tell them that Jesus is the only way to God, to the exclusion of all others. Perhaps you may be suffering right now or in a very messy relationship and you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel and so you may deny Jesus' love for you. As for me, I'm someone who would like to be in control of my life. Uh, this is confession. Huh? Yeah, so so I, I thought this week as I was preparing this sermon, I, got, I, I thought I got it all planned out. So I have sort of finished, sort of finished writing my sermon and then on, uh, on Thursday. So I was planning to finish everything, including editing on a Friday. So finish fri uh, sermon on a Friday is a, is a good runway for me, right? At least I got Saturday to you know, just uh, run through and relax. And then, lo and behold, on Friday morning after I dropped my kids off to school, I met uh, a guy who was weaving in and out of uh, traffic, and he, he, we, had a, we collided and had a uh, car accident. And I can tell you at the time, uh, yeah, uh, Jesus wasn't Lord over my life. I, I didn't use, I, I wasn't angry or what, but uh, there's this 
frustration within me. It's like, oh God, why must this happen right now? Where I thought I have the whole Friday to write this sermon and then now half a day will be gone trying to call for a tow truck because the car was so badly damaged. And then I have to go and do the workshop and report insurance. So my wife was in Japan and I, and, and I texted her and asked her, hey, dear, what's our insurance company? Because normally she's the one who set her. And she told me NTUC Income. So I happily called NTUC Income and they came down. And the tow truck, you know, they called the tow truck and it was towed away to an NTUC Income authorized workshop. So I thought, thank God, everything is settled. And by then it was Friday afternoon. So I okay, only got half a day. So I, I proceeded to uh, write my sermon. And on Friday uh, evening, about 6 plus, uh, the, the car workshop called me and said, hey, you're not with NTUC Income. I was like, what? Because my, my accident was on 15, right? My NTC income uh, insurance starts on the 18. So I was still with the old insurance company. So, yeah, and at the time, uh, I would have denied that uh, no, Jesus loved me very much because like, God, why is this happening? And I have to admit that I was frustrated with my wife as well. See, low-grade frustration. Huh? I can say this because she's in Japan. She's not here today. <laughs> yeah. So I was frustrated with her like, hey, you give me the wrong insurance company, you know? Yeah, then it was... Uh, another company. So then, oh my goodness, it was Friday evening. There's nothing much I can do. And then I thought that I have the runway on Saturday to finish up my sermon. But now, Saturday morning, I have to go down to the workshop and you know, to the other company workshop, authorized workshop, and call a tow truck to tow my car to that workshop and settle all the paperwork again. So the long story short is uh, God was telling me that, hey, Jason, uh, you're not sovereign over your life. I am. Yeah, and I have to learn to surrender completely to the sovereignty of God. And so I have to admit, yesterday I, I preached a sermon which uh, I personally felt was half-baked, but I, I, yeah, I just commit to the Lord to say, God, you are able to you know, use the sermon to accomplish your purpose. So brothers and sisters in Christ, let me ask you this question. Is Jesus still Christ in your suffering, in your pain, in your disappointment and failures? Is he still Lord when your prayers are unanswered and your dreams shattered? I ask of you as I ask of myself. Or have we bought into the lies of the Antichrist? So the small rejections of Jesus may ultimately lead to the total abandonment of him. So I've been a Liverpool fan for the past 37 years. And I'm going to squeeze all the Liverpool analogy because uh, they're here in town. I can only use them this weekend. Next weekend cannot use already, right? I've been a Liverpool supporter for the past 37 years and it has made me a better Christian. <laughs> Why? Because I understand what long-suffering feels like. <laughs> I'm used to being mocked at for their mediocre result, you know, where recently they were, they were trashed by Manchester United, right, in a friendly. And I admit that on days where they played so badly, I find hard, you know, I actually find shameful to wear my Liverpool jersey and, and walk out of the house. <laughs> and for a long time, it feels like I'm supporting the wrong team. I'm supporting the losing team. And perhaps this is what the Christians in John's time felt. 
they will have feel discouraged and disappointed when they were battered by false teachers where flocks of people would leave the church. So imagine if one day one of the pastors who preached up here, including myself, one day if we were to uh, denounce Christ and walk out of church, would your faith be shaken? Some will be enticed by the bright lights of the world. Hey, maybe support another team, uh, not, not Manchester United. Maybe support Manchester City, right? Because they're the champion, right? Maybe just why support a losing team? They might even ask, are they in a losing team? But unlike supporting Liverpool, where there's no assurance of winning, the Christians are assured that they are on the winning side because Christ has already secured our victory on the cross. We just need to abide in Him. And if you know God, you abide in Christ. And John tells us that we are not helpless because God has already given us the Holy Spirit, seen in verse 20 and 21. He said, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. So what does this anointing mean? You have been anointed by the Holy One. So in the Old Testament, uh, this one I'm very stressed because I'm an Old Testament uh, scholar, my former lecturer here, so very stressed. Make sure I get it right. In the Old Testament, priests, kings, and messiahs are anointed. They are anointed as a sign of their appointment. So here, God has anointed believers with the Holy Spirit as a deposit, as a guarantee that we are truly sons and daughters of God. And John goes on to write that you, because we are anointed by the Holy One, the Holy Spirit, and you, have, and you all have knowledge, we are now able to know the truth. And verse 27 tells us His anointing teaches you about everything. So the Holy Spirit will help us and enable us to have true knowledge and He will teach us about everything. So does it mean that we now no longer need teachers and pastors to teach us. I know this passage could have caused me to lose my job. I don't need pastor already, right? No, of course not. Why? Because John is writing this to teach them as well. John couldn't contradict himself, right? But rather what he's saying is this, that in contrast to the false teachers who deny Christ, Christians have the Holy Spirit to teach them everything they need to know about Christ and to abide in Him. So with the Spirit's help, you will never walk alone. I promise you that's the last uh, Liverpool analogy. <laughs> and finally, abiding in Christ doesn't mean that there's no room for failure. You may have disliked a brother or sister. You may have committed a grave sin in your life. You may have failed to love God, but love the world instead. And like Peter, you may even deny Jesus in some difficult seasons of your life. But if there's hope for Peter, then surely there's hope for us. Peter turns back to Jesus and finds forgiveness and restoration through Christ. 
Likewise, we can come to Jesus and continue to abide in Him. You see, 1 John chapter 1, or rather 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 tells us, it's like this, that Jesus Christ, the righteous, is not based on our righteousness, but His. He's the righteous one. He will be our advocate before the Father, and He's the propitiation for our sins. And so it's through Him that we can be made right with God and continue to abide in Him. So in closing, if today God has spoken to you through His words and revealed your sins to you, do not harden your heart, but turn back to Him and find forgiveness in Jesus. For if you know God, you will obey Him you will love him and not love the world, and you will abide in him and his son. Amen.